Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, a podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal, which explores tourism and tourism-related areas, recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. The purpose of the Tourism Geographies podcast is to help us promote and bring to light the work that's been published in the journal by authors from around the globe. Every week we release an episode, and this week is no different. This week we have Linus Kalvelage, who is currently in Cologne at the Institute of Geography at the University of Cologne, Germany. And we will draw mainly on Linus's paper that was published not too long ago in Volume 24, Issue 4 and 5, 2022, titled How Much Remains? Local Value Capture from Tourism in Zambezi, Namibia. A very timely and important topic. And with that, I welcome you, Linus. Thanks for joining us on Tourism Geographies podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Joseph. I think where you are at the moment, it's it's deep in winter, and, and so so am I here in, well, not so deep yet, in, in southern Japan. So I hope you're keeping warm and you're ready to go uh, in terms of giving our audience a really good insight into the paper you've published, but as well as your wider work. I'd like to remind the audience that the main purpose of this is for us to introduce you to the people who write this work, listen to the authors, and listen to the authors give you their own articulations about the work that they're doing. So with that, Linus, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you currently based? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, first of all, let me thank you also for the great opportunity to discuss my research on this podcast. I mean, I've published in a number of journals, but I have to say that uh, the editorial team of Tools and Geographies is really supportive and you do a lot to promote the articles in innovative ways. So it's great to be part of this. Thank you. Yeah, so regarding myself, uh, I am a postdoctoral research fellow and lecturer at the geography department at the University of Cologne, as you said. And as such, I'm uh, part of the uh, Economic Geography and Global South Working Group. I'm also an associated member of the collaborative research center called Future Rural Africa, Future Making and Social Ecological Transformation. I think there you can see where this work uh, uh, comes from. Um, and this is actually an interdisciplinary network of researchers looking at transformation processes in a number of African countries. But uh, it is mainly based at uh, Bonn and Cologne University here in Germany. Uh, however, we operate uh, with a great number of partner universities in African countries. So embedded in this project, I had the chance to conduct my PhD study on growth corridors and wildlife tourism in Southern Africa. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would consider myself an economic geographer with a distinguished interest in studying nature, conservation and biodiversity, uh, and obviously the role that tourism plays in this. Right, and you have a fantastic geography department there. I recall attending the Economic Geography Conference there. I can't remember how long ago, maybe three or four years ago, Before certainly before COVID. <laughs> ah, yeah, great. I think that, that was in 2018, right? The Global uh, Conference on Economic Geography. That's right. Well, fantastic. Yeah. It looks like you've you've, um, you've got a, an eclectic uh, number of interests there, particularly focused on the global south. Can you tell me, with this paper that you published in Tourism Geographies recently, uh, local value capture from tourism in Zambibi, Namibia, Zambezi, Namibia, what was the central question you were trying to answer in this work? 
I mean, obviously, uh, the, the, the central question is, of course, uh, in the title already, how much remains, right? And I think this is a question valid for many destinations, not only in the Global South. We have the same issues here in, in, in many cities, cities in Europe uh, or, or destinations. So it's a simple question, but I think the answer is, is, is more complex. So all in all, I would say the paper had three objectives uh, we wanted to uh, understand. First of all, the ownership structures and, and economic linkages of tourism enterprises in the Zambezi region. And secondly, we wanted to understand the role of, of local institutions in, in, in shaping the economic relations that incoming investors would have with the, with the hosting community. That was the second aim of the paper. And then uh, thirdly, obviously, we wanted to uh, quantify somehow the success of these local institutions in appropriating or capturing value from, from these economic activities. Yeah, that was, that was mainly the aim of the, the paper. There's some interesting questions there, and I usually try to leave the answer to the end, but I, I can't help but ask you this because I imagine listeners will be saying, well, if Linus has asked the question, how much remains, how much actually remains? I know it's a complex question, as you say, but if you could, if you could simplify it, how much remains, Linus? Yeah, that's a very good question. I hope uh, the listeners now will uh, listen to the podcast to the end if I uh, now give the answer. But uh, yeah, so according to our estimations or our cal the calculations, we uh, calculated that on a regional level, 20% of the uh, created value from tourism would remain within the region. And now the interesting part of this is when I tell this figure to, to interested people, some would say, oh, uh, this is quite good, right? Others would say, oh, uh, this is not really good. This is now um, the, the, the interesting part. We have this figure. And now what do we do with this figure? How do we interpret this figure? Mm, yeah, well, I think that's a really important point. And I, I'm sure you'll come back to it towards the end, because very often in the conversation about tourism and its role and as, as, a, as a vehicle for development, right? This question is often asked, you know, uh, how, how are the bottlenecks that prevent trickle-down um, removed? You know, how do we ensure greater participation from people at the grassroots? So when you say 20%, to some degree, some might see it as an arbitrary figure, right? 20% might be better than 10% or, or less, right? So when you say 20%, how does this rate as a comparative figure more generally? Is it good or is it, is it not so good? I mean, if you look at it from a broader perspective, I mean, there's a lot of value chain research out there in, in other industries as well. And, and just lately, I, I heard a presentation on cocoa production or chocolate consumption, right? And there, actually, the, the rate is much smaller, right? So I think in, in many regions which are still developing, you don't have sufficient knowledge base, you don't have the capital which is needed. So actually 20%, I think it's quite considerable a figure. Um, yeah. Right. And, and you touch on a really important point. A lot of times, what is an acceptable percentage, let's say, is very context-driven, right? Because if, if the capacity is very limited on the ground, 20% might be way, way better than what they might have otherwise. And I, I suddenly think, start thinking about cruise tourism as an example, how while it has its critics, cruisers often find that they can, they can visit very remote ports 
and and uh, and inject income where otherwise income would otherwise be constrained, right? Um, so I think this idea of it being context driven is a really important one. Yes, absolutely. But then on the other hand, I mean, you always have these negative effects of tourism and, and, and uh, of course, the positive effects should outweigh the, the costs of tourism, right? So this, uh, I think we also need to take into consideration. Right. And this is why you said it was so complex. I mean, it's one thing to say 20% remains in the region, but what are the externalities that lead to that 20%? And is it a trade-off that's worthwhile in the end? Absolutely. And now, if you have this figure of 20%, and this is a question we didn't answer in this uh, paper, but we, are, we, we have been working on it, um, it does, who, who, who gets a share in these 20%, right? So this is on a regional level, but obviously you have parts of the society who are able uh, to appropriate more of these rents uh, than other parts. Uh, you, you might have more marginalized parts of the population who don't get a share. So this is also, I think, an interesting uh, aspect to look at. Right, totally. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because presumably a lot of this research, was it done before COVID or during co the early part of COVID? Um, well, I collected the data in 2018 and 19, so just before COVID. So I wanted to ask you and, and your reflections on whether this, this the assertion that, uh, you know, this it's more of a, a, a debate, right, on the extent to which conservation and tourism work well together. Yes, absolutely. I mean, on a more general level, we have a lot of talking about the issue of climate change and, and there are considerable resources are also channeled into this, uh, into adaptation strategies, green technologies and so on. I think we are dealing less, uh, less with the second biggest threat to humanity these, uh, these days, right, which is biodiversity loss. And, and there, I think we need to have more, uh, more, more work on this um, to identify economic models that work to safeguard biodiversity, but also uh, respect the, the desire for, for economic development and poverty reduction, of course. Because although we, we talk about in, in tourism geographies, we often talk about tourism as a system. It is a system that fits into a wider global economic system, right? And the questions you raise are particularly important. You know, what are the what are the best models that work in each individual situation? But what I wanted to do before we get back to that this question later on in the interview was for those who are interested in how you did this research, um, how did you go about collecting data and conducting this fieldwork? Because as we know, for a lot of researchers working away from home base, especially in, a, in, a, in another country where you might not know the language or you might not be familiar with culture, cultures and customs. Can you describe your, your data collection and, and, and the challenges you found in conducting this field work, if any? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there were the challenges. And uh, as you rightly said, before starting my research, I had never traveled to a Southern African country. So the context was different from what I knew before. And, and, and due to this somehow cultural distance, uh, let me call it, I relied, of course, on the help of my local assistants and research partnerships with the local university to also get access to the communities. So I, there was a lot of trust building involved before I could actually start working uh, on the project. So the article is based on a business survey, qualitative interviews, and um, also the analysis of existing data sets. All in all, during my PhD, I spent nine months in Southern Africa conducting fieldwork. And this article now was one of the first articles. So I wrote it after the first wave of data collection during four months. 
And I was mainly based in Katima Mulilo, uh, which is the regional capital of the Zambezi region. But I also traveled to Windhoek because you, uh, in the capital of Namibia, because there you have a lot of um, important stakeholders as well. So this is um, basically what I did. But the challenges, to come back to the challenges, when I speak here about tourism, I speak about photographic safari tourism, but you also have the hunting tourism part uh, active in the region. And especially the hunting sector was a bit reserved, right? Because you have uh, professional hunters who are well aware of the often negative images their activities would have in the Western world. So they are facing a lot of criticism. And when I approached them as an academic from a European country, they would sometimes assume that I'm some kind of an activist uh, trying to harm the business. So that was definitely uh, a challenge. And another challenge was that unlike in a European context, uh, you do not have a lot of baseline data already available. So there have been researchers active in the region for a number of years, of course, but sometimes it was hard to get some reliable economic data on a regional scale. So I sometimes had the feeling that for some topics, I had to do the groundwork first. Well, you raised two really interesting points. You know, for many um, uh, beginner researchers, very often when you go into the field, you know, you, you you are to some degree throwing caution to the wind. You don't know what to expect, right? And the two points you raised about, you know, if you're trying to do critical research to investigate problems, at times you find yourself running up against people who have a vested interest in keeping things the same, going in the same direction, as well as, you know, this idea of not having a lot of great deal of data. Data paucity makes your work a lot more difficult, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, in, in that regard, if you could uh, once again provide some advice for beginner researchers, how do you how did you adjust to all of these challenges in the field? Did you have to uh, call on your own resources, or did you have instructions that came from somewhere else that helped you? Well, I mean, obviously, I was embedded into this uh, larger network of, uh, of my project. There are 80 scientists involved, and, and you have, of course, more experienced researchers. Uh, so I could somehow rely on this and, and ask for advice. Um, that was really helpful. But I think the central point here is uh, to really get partners uh, uh, from the local context. And luckily, uh, there is an, uh, a local in, uh, university in, in Katima Mulilo, and they are very well connected to, uh, to the, the whole community. And, and building a relationship there, I think that was crucial for, for the whole endeavor. Um, yeah, this would uh, probably be an advice uh, I could give with my limited experience. Because it's one thing to have a, a research design all mapped out, but when you go into the field, it can be quite a different thing altogether. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. We've got so from methods to theory, uh, Linus. What what theory informed your work? If you can describe the the the, the, the key frameworks that you, your analysis um, drew from. Yeah. So uh, the the theory is actually um, that of. Global production networks. Uh, this is the theory underlying my work. Now, uh, many listeners will be familiar with the concept of global uh, value chains. Um, global value chain research looks at how and where value is created and how does this value travel across space. So this may sound a bit abstract now, but a very typical example would be, I mentioned it earlier, the chocolate production, for instance. You buy a chocolate bar in the supermarket and then start following its origins until you reach yeah. the cocoa farmer in Ghana, for instance, right? 
And yes. at each stage of the production value, uh, at each, each stage of the production value is added to the product, product as it travels to the consumer for packaging, distribution, marketing, and so on. So this was initially an, an analytical concept rooted in world system theory, and therefore it's embedded in a more critical literature. However, afterwards, the concept was widely adopted by development agencies and policymakers trying to identify upgrading strategies to improve uh, livelihoods and get a greater share of the cake, let's say. Mm -hmm. And now, with the ongoing globalization, global production has become ever more complex. And if we think of the assemblage of passenger cars, for example, parts are produced in China or Mexico and then sent around the world to be assembled in, in, in Stuttgart or Wolfsburg. And to acknowledge this increased complexity, economic geographers have begun to apply a network heuristic instead of a more linear chain metaphor to global production. So the advantage here is that you not only include firm actors into the analysis, but you also take into account the many other actors that shape the spatial organization of global production, such as government bodies, ministries, uh, business association, international institutions or NGOs. And while applying a network perspective, you combine a somehow more regionalized, horizontal perspective with a vertical perspective. So this is uh, global production networks. Now, within global production networks research, you have three key analytical categories, which are power, value, and embeddedness. You look at these three issues here. And now in my work, two uh, concepts were particularly crucial, crucial which are value capture, it's in the title, and local embeddedness. Value capture refers to the ability of actors in regions to secure value created from an industry within the region and for the benefit of the region. And local embedded, embeddedness is one crucial determinant of value ca capture as it measures all these local linkages that international enterprises would have when anchoring in a region. So this uh, was basically the theoretical foundation of my work. It sits within the broader world systems kind of framework, which which makes makes a lot of sense. And I think um, it, it's particularly instructive to those working in the global south trying to understand the impacts of tourism. We've gone so now we're moving from global value chain, which which became popularized in impact studies, to this work that you're doing on global production networks. Now, in terms of impact and, and how this is, has perhaps permeated policy and practice, Linus, can you tell me, was trying to influence or help shape policy an aim of your work? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, not maybe not necessarily shaping policy, but helping policymakers to uh, have uh, informed decisions, right? So this, this is more, more my focus. And especially when you talk about hunting tourism, I mean, uh, this is a very heated debate. Uh, surprisingly in Southern Africa, or many people would say, no, uh, this is actually a thing uh, we need. We need it to generate income. So here for me, it was interesting just to see whether this benefits at least economically uh, some, uh, some people or conservation um, goals uh, as a whole, or whether it, whether it doesn't. And in Namibia, tourism as a whole has a very, meant, uh, very prominent place in, in policy. So many, many national policy strategies would speak about tourism. 
But but now the question for me was, do local people really benefit from this industry or is it only the international enterprises uh, taking away all, uh, all the money? That's a question that resonates across much tourism geographies research in the global south. Um, in, in the interest of time, I wanted to ask you this then. What is the key takeaway from this study for, for, for practice, perhaps from a scholarly perspective as well, if you, can, if you can add to that? Well, in my view, the key takeaway is that if tourism is well managed, it can contribute to the preservation of ecosystems and at the same time give impulses for regional development. And we haven't talked about the local institutions yet, but this is actually uh, also main focus of my study. Uh, local institutions play a crucial role in this and national governments should look at legislations that allow municipalities more effectively to benefit from tourism development, especially in the global south, but not exclusively, I would say, if we talk about transferring my results. And you touch on two very key points, capacity development and governance. <laughs> a lot of things that um, can often be prone to political, uh, poor political management, if you like, without being too critical. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it all comes with well-managed institutions, and, and this is really the key, I think. And the local institutions you mentioned is, is particularly important because we see for me in any way, I, I've come from an international development perspective where often the international development agencies might drive developments on the ground. And if you want to gain ownership, you need to build a local capacity and ownership in whatever the initiatives are. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Now, Linus, uh, to give us a glimpse of the work that you're doing to the future, what are you working on now and what can readers have to look forward to? Luckily, our project has secured another funding for the coming four years, so we are able to right. monitor the situation further. Yeah, thank you. And and now there's a new PhD student employed in the project, Fundo Melillo. He's a very talented researcher from Zimbabwe, and he's currently looking at the issue of black entrepreneurship in the regions. So my findings have shown that the tourism sector is mainly dominated by foreigners and white Namibians. And uh, now the question is, why is that so? And Fundo currently runs a survey down there, trying to understand the patterns of the local industries and what are the main obstacles for more local entrepreneurship. Uh, because one thing is appropriating value uh, from, from the industry. The other thing is engaging with the industry yourself, right? Um, so I think we can expect some thrilling results from this work in the near future, I'm sure. Personally, I will be, of course, accompanying this further. I've just finished a chapter for a teaching book on truths and geographies, uh, which is a German, but which is also great because this way this subdiscipline will gain more popularity also in teaching, I think. I would be very happy to contribute to similar projects in English, just in case you happen to know of some book project, right? Yes, um, yes, yes. As I'm an economic geographer, I'm not solely focusing on tourism. In the future, I would like to focus more on uh, renewable energies and what role do they play in, in developing um, lagging regions. But yeah, I mean, who knows? There are definitely a number of cross-cutting themes there and overlaps uh, with tourism. I think this would also be a nice nexus to look at renewable energies and tourism. Yes, yes. One, of, well, one of the things that that all highlights is the interdisciplinary nature of this work, right? And this is why tourism geographies draws from two disciplines, tourism and geographies. But what you highlight in your work is that very often the work we do goes beyond a particular sector itself and, and has relevance across a number of other sectors. Yes, absolutely. 
Okay, uh, Linus, um, before, we, before we finish today's podcast, any final comments? Just one comment. Thanks a lot for having me here. It's a great opportunity to be part of this new podcast series. And I hope uh, there will be many more podcasts in the future. Uh, I will be uh, very interested to listen to some of the other authors as well. Excellent. Thank you, Linus. Your paper has um, garnered a lot of interest and, uh, and we thank you for your contributions to tourism geographies. For any listeners who might not be familiar with Linus' paper, you can find it on our website. It's in uh, issue 24. Uh, volume 24, issue 45, 2022, and the paper is titled How Much Remains Local Value Capture from Tourism in Zambezi, Namibia. With that, I say thank you, Linus, for joining us, and um, I wish you well. Have a, have a good winter, and look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you, Joseph.